You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. Find it on Spotify, Audio Boom, Apple, Acast, basically everywhere. Follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter at Thoroughly Good, on Facebook at Thoroughly Good Me, and on Instagram at Thoroughly underscore Good. Live from London is a digital concert series now at the end of its first year in existence. Four seasons of ticketed digital events have already been staged and have seen vocal groups from across the world respond pragmatically to the restrictions placed on musicians as a result of the pandemic. With performances filmed as live at the Voches 8 Centre in central London in addition to concerts from Europe and the US. It's not an unusual endeavour. There are plenty of organisations already doing this. Rather, its inclusion here in this episode of the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast is a reflection of the series' particular success. Live from London boasts a viewing audience in 75 countries with an estimated global reach of 4.5 million. The series has raised more than 1 million for artists and arts organisations around the world, and the latest series includes performances Messian's Quartet for the End of Time, performance from Chinakay and Foch's 8, amongst a great many others. It would be easy to tell that story starting with when the pandemic hit. But like a lot of organisations who have created success when live music was impacted, live from London's real roots go further back. As you'll hear from brothers Barney and Paul Smith, who run Voches 8 and set up live from London between them. Five years digital audience development was one thing that was necessary. Also building a digital content strategy where visiting artists are partners in a creative project rather than guests of an organisation or artists on a promoter's roster. The distinction is important as you'll hear. So the school that Paul and I went to in Bedford, this kid used to cycle 90 miles a day to and from school for his training. And I think in, in music industry terms, and certainly in the terms of um, organisations within the music industry, I think that we put in sort of Olympian efforts into into what it is that we do and have wanted and because Paul and I have always been doing that from the front the guys behind also do it and I think it's actually that hard work and graft combined with the visions and values of the foundation that have meant that we've ended up in a very secure position the nature of the speed of the response that we could give came down in my opinion to two things First of all, our instinct, and second of all, our resource level. We were basically resourced to do exactly what we wanted to do at the click of our fingers, and we have the visions and values that we were able to instinctively react in a way that people have caught on to. And there are other there are other ensembles I've noticed who were similarly well placed, maybe not as technically well placed, but you know I think about Orchestra and Swamp what was apparent was that they were already having ideas about how to uh, package up album releases with some studio-bound storytelling half-hour things. I mean, they're doing an entirely different thing from... I'm not in any way comparing the editorial, but um, they they had already positioned themselves beforehand. They were already thinking that way. I'm just... I suppose what I really want to get from both of you is, are you aware the extent to which... The position you were in before the pandemic started was really quite unusual. Yeah, are you aware of that? Very. I think actually you've talked about you know coming in prepared, 
we spent a number of years you know probably five or six the last five or six years we have been working so hard on our online presence uh, and not just thinking about making nice videos but on how it can serve purposes that are similar to online learning and all this kind of stuff so we've we've been on that for years and we had a space which for years has been providing a, a function that is now similar to what it has in the last year but was all in real life so instead of kids coming in to do workshops here we can run workshops from here you know it's it's just <coughs> sorry about that excuse me fine. I'm very sorry about that I came back from Verbio which is lovely I, obviously I've been David. itching yeah. I, I've been itching to drop that into a conversation Barney. Uh, but I, I came back disease free but infected with a cold uh, oh, no. uh, and it's the weirdest thing to have gone infection free for 18 months then it's yeah, yeah. And then suddenly, everyone, uh, everyone's going to have a terrible cold yeah they're all going to be really yeah. miserable I think it'll be off work <laughs> again um, okay that's that's don't name ensembles necessarily uh, please don't but <laughs> do you then look on what some sectors of uh, some parts of the sector are doing still uh, in response to the pandemic and think why have you not caught up because there are some part of the sector yeah. hasn't caught up yet some and actually, I mean, Barney's touched on the artists that we've collaborated with this year. There are, you know, there are people in our sector who have said no. And if you haven't seen an artist in Live from London who you think, oh, they should probably be, have been in, like they seem like the kind of group who would be there, it's probably because they didn't say yes. What, and what is their reason for, for not saying yes? For not saying no even? It can be any... Fear. Fear? Fear? Uh, yeah. Of what? No. Yeah, well, there right. you go. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you, uh, yeah, but what do you think they're frightened of? Well, they would say that... Monopoly. Or risk of not appearing as they would like to, losing the editorial sort of control, mm. for example. I think those are the two things. Presumably they're not signed to a label then. No, um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, and I'm actually going through the, the process of collaboration. Every artist who's been involved, and I think <laughs> us as probably the most we, we we had resources and what we've tried to say to every partner is we will share those with you if you will come and give of yourself to be a part of this so you can come you can perform you'll get paid money but based on how a share like everyone else and if you're a well-known group or a less well-known group you're all we take the same split so actually there's a commitment from everyone to do that that means the bigger names effectively end up taking more risk than the smaller names but that's how we support our industry, if you like. So for those of us who are not averse with uh, rights, then that is different from, say, how a TV appearance would be paid. Yeah, or, or anything. I mean, if you imagine that... Uh... So if I come along and sit with you, you don't want this to happen, I have to tell you. <laughs> but if I was to sing or play for you, you would be saying to me, we'll pay you a fee for your appearance. Mm. And then any profit that we make from your, from your appearance, we'll pay you, yeah. we'll split it. Well, sometimes. Or, um, I mean, in our pre-COVID world, we would be paid a fee to go somewhere. Yeah. And then it's up to the person who's selling that uh, concert to make as much money as they can. And it's no risk to us because we're getting paid a fee. Whereas in our series the money comes from ticket sales and we don't know how many we sell until we sell them. So actually when you're setting up a series, everyone comes in knowing that they're going to take a risk. But especially for the first season, you know, we've got no idea. Are 10 people going to buy a ticket? But they're going to come into that season knowing they're going to get something, but they might also possibly get more. Exactly. But the something could could be zero. 
you know, if we don't sell any tickets, if no one's... Oh, it's as simple as that. It's you don't sell the tickets, you don't get them. Yeah, and then when we get the tickets, every, everything gets split. So the artist in concert one gets the same as the artist in concert eight. doesn't matter if there are four musicians or 30. As an, as an artist, you get... Each, each sort of artist gets booked. So everyone comes in with a different model. A quartet of um, players would end up actually walking away with the same fee as an mm. orchestra of 30, but they obviously have a very different structure and setup. So each partner coming into the to the, the fold, if you like, takes the same risk, but their benefits then change depending on who they are, how, how they work, how they themselves sell tickets. You know, we encourage every artist to also be a retailer. So, right. so some okay. artists, let's name the good ones. Um, I think the top of the tree, Chanticleer, an American group mm-hmm. we had last year, mm-hmm. um, came in and they sold the equivalent of like 4,000 tickets. But actually, that's to the whole season. And so actually, they're not just selling a ticket to their They're promoted. Their they're, acting is promoted. They promote everybody. And everyone promotes everybody. Mm-hmm. And so in that simple way, you're kind of encouraging um, everyone so I'm not I know this is not me tripping you up I'm not trying I'm trying to understand why an established artist would fear that kind of setup because surely they've got nothing really to lose if they don't get a fee no one's really going to know well I would say that in in this last year the best thing has been that most people did have nothing to lose so Mm. most people who we have asked to be involved have said yes Um, but a few didn't and that was probably because they uh, haven't either had their own ideas and didn't want to be involved in something else because they wanted to promote their own thing and they mm-hmm. thought this would dilute that. Or another reason we don't know, because to our mind, this was a gift for all of us. I wonder too whether, right here I'm going into user interfaces and platforms, because I've got that's a real bugbear of mine, that there are some <laughs> streaming platforms I hear a snigger from Cambridge who suggests <laughs> that maybe uh, our Cambridge correspondent is in agreement um, that there are some platforms which create uh, a barrier for users to watch it. You know, I don't really watch streams on my laptop anymore. I, I cast it to my connected TV. Mm. Um, and some streaming platforms clearly get that, which is why they've offered the, the casting element uh, and others don't. I wonder whether... Over time, you think that there will emerge maybe two or only three streaming platforms based on the most efficient user experience, and I wonder whether yours would be one of them. I think uh, there's a strong possibility because I think, as I said, there's too much out there that's not good, um, and people are drawn, um, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, to something that's straightforward and provides good quality, and people are also happy to pay for that. I mean, if you look at Apple computers, a prime example, isn't it? No better computer than other computers, but they don't break and they look nice and they're easy to use. And so Apple can charge about twice what everyone else does for the same thing. And here we all are with an iPad, an iPhone. A... Yeah. I think it's just looking around the table. <laughs> 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 oh, just, oh. So predictable. Uh, is that what you're saying? Because it's good and I think... Um, you know, if we look at live from London, something that we, a comment that we get a lot is, well, look, I mean, even when I can go out to a concert, I'm still going to subscribe to your service because you bring me group. So yeah, it doesn't have any video. Oh, no, Kevin does have video. <laughs> um, no, yeah, groups that I might otherwise get to see once a decade if I'm lucky and I get 10 of them in three months. 
with you. And it's, of course, it's not the same as going live, but it's a great service. And, uh, you know, I'll keep subscribing to it. So, but is but there yeah, something that I'm, I'm asking about the platform itself? I'm asking whether yeah, well, that's the key. Hugely, yeah, it's hugely important. And I think any user interface is, is your doorway into any product and whatever it is, it's got to be right for the user. Otherwise, the user turns their back on it. What prompted you to go with your with on player? Is that right? In player. In player. Uh, well, I think coming back to the point you made, there's actually not a host of particularly good options available. Um, in player was both cost effective. It provided the uh, software support that we needed in the sense that uh, it was handling projects that were much bigger on a much bigger scale. So therefore we were not even touching the sides with what it can do. So we were playing in a safe size ballpark in, in that sense. And it came, yeah, it came at the right price. And I think that we had some teething problems in the sense of how we were enabling our users to interact within player to begin with. But I perceive that we've ironed that out now, which is great. When we put the first series out, correct me, Barney, if I'm wrong, the first series we were using Vimeo, weren't we? Yes, and then we yeah. and then we've subsequently moved to Decast. Yeah. Um, and that's another that was another interesting choice. We basically got a phone call from Vimeo, which said, uh, "We've noticed that you're now in the top one percent of users in our in the world <laughs> in terms of how much of our um, storage you're using <laughs> with all the people logging in, because it's based on." Um, how many people watch something. So, not so you would pay them a fee based so, on how many people yeah. are connecting to their yeah, service. So it's not the size of what we put up, it's the amount it's getting watched. Gosh. And um, we, we raised, the, you know, the little flags came up on our, our account. So they very nicely called and very uh, kindly... Did they ask you for, kindly for quote, increase? Yes, they asked for a lot of money. <laughs> and wow. um, so we said... Okay, well, that's very kind. We'll go and see what else we can find. Aren't you both charming individuals? Clearly, you can answer that conversation in an extremely measured and adult way. Uh, I would have been screaming down the phone. Yeah, and so yeah, they so we're now with Decast, right. and they we still have to pay them a hefty chunk, but um, they give up. We found again it comes back to that service. The service they give us actually has worked very well. Does the model that streaming platforms? I think I know the answer to this. That, that those kind of streaming solutions offer musicians like yourselves, does that benefit the musician or is it a massive pain in the arse? Well, it depends on how many tickets you sell, doesn't it, I think. So it provides you with motivation and incentive. It, it's, it's, yes. it's, the price is right enough that we can make it work. But it was interesting actually how we could actually get started last summer relatively cheaply. And actually, as the the rest of the world is catching up, the the people who want to get paid for their for the services are circling more presently. Vimeo being an example. Looking what happens with people like PPL, I think will also be interesting. Um, they've tried to do some ludicrous things and like back, backdate charges to things that they have no control over, and there's nothing legal as far as I can see in what they were trying to do. So uh, there are many conversations to have which are ab above my pay grade by a margin. What prompted um, you? What prompted you to begin with to not go down the same route that, say, the Wigmore Hall has done, which is make being, it free, make it free, and then uh, adopt a, a, a donate model. Um, we have a belief that if we're doing something good, then people will be happy to pay for it if it's priced correctly. Um, 
And we find normally that if you just ask for donations, it, it won't often amount to the same. Actually encouraging people to think of this as going to a concert. I don't go to a concert and make a donation. I go to a concert and buy a ticket. I go to the movies. I buy a ticket. I don't just give what I happen to have. Does that suggest some, <laughs> uh, and I'm not suggesting that the uh, Wigmore is not telling the truth, but does that suggest that some claims about levels of donations are perhaps... Um, I would say that every organisation is different when it comes to their donors and probably the Wigmore Hall is amongst the better set up in terms of their support systems on that side of things. It's a bit also... And their donors' available resources. Exactly. Right. Um, We've actually seen, and I mentioned why we're so grateful to people around the world, our number of donors in the last year, because we've needed it, have suddenly, they've all realised how important they are to us and we have 500% more donors than we had a year ago, um, which is crazy, isn't it? But actually, it is. um, people are have, have been aware that we do need support and that the arts need support. And I'm sure m- many, many arts organisations have felt more loved by their donors and yeah. realised the support they have over this last year than ever before. It's quite humbling to actually be getting so much um, awareness of the people who are out there who do care enough to support you I, I have to I just have to challenge it not not for the sake of the, the interview but just that in my in my experience doing strategy work for other organisations I think that your successes would, are looked on by some other organisations as how the hell did they manage that <laughs> how did they make that happen what, what sort of marketing resource did you have to put behind it how much, like, financially? Not much. It's We've used our social media it's, platforms. Yeah, it's um, all it, it's all been bank. Like, it's all what we had in the bank, in essence. Yeah, I think we're, and he, you he we've been you out there you don't mean for money. years. Barney doesn't mean money when no. he says the bank. He means the no, social, I mean, the followers. What I mean is all the money is under repair. It's under his bed, That's right why there. he lives in the yes, house in yeah. Cambridgeshire. <laughs> that nobody knows where it is. <laughs> but, you know, stuff like... Um, you know, we do 130 gigs a year and in every concert we're inviting people to join a mailing list and every concert we're asking them to follow us on Facebook. We're, we're giving them 12 vi- music videos a year for the last five years. You know, How long, have you, been do- how long have you been doing the, the, the building the mailing list thing? Probably five years before COVID yeah. with videos yeah. and stuff like that. So, you know, we sold, what, four and a half thousand season tickets maybe to our first live from London. But that's probably fewer than 1% of the hardcore Vultures 8 fans. When you consider, you know, we've got tracks on Spotify. One of our tracks streams, what, 6 million times a year. And I think a a lot of, um, I think a way that we're also a bit, possibly a bit savvy in a good way is with a partnership like Decca where we will go out there and actually we do believe in as well as providing people with the art that we believe in and that we want to do and that we think they should enjoy hearing we do also mix that with stuff that opens doors so this track i'm talking about is may it be one of the one vultures eight member who will remain nameless said i can't believe i'm having to sing this in this group it is the worst thing we have ever done I never want to do anything like this again. It wasn't the one who and damaged his great. ankle when he was playing surfball at Milton Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no it was someone mean, else. <laughs> he's, but he's there is an understanding that, that actually it brings us an audience. And all we're doing is 
is cashing in on that investment in essence. So, so what you're saying is, I think that you've spent time building your digital audience via social media and direct mail, and you've also built a portfolio of content which reaches out to a variety of different audience groups. Yeah. Yeah. And we've then worked out how to give a really high quality experience to people sat at home. And where did, where did you both come up with that idea? Um, well, did you learn that from somewhere? Or did you just like... I'm going to put most of the tech competence onto Barney. Um, because he's he's been a microphone sound geek for a long time, so we had all the sound kids anyway. I'm sorry, no, we, yeah, no, I mean, as in built on by the idea of the festival. Oh, I mean, digital the, uh, building the, the marketing thing. How did you? Where does that come from? Is that you, or is that both of you? Is that someone else who's been whispering? It's a combination already? between the two of us and Robin, who you met downstairs, right. and Libby, who um, is Barney's better half. Right, and um, she runs her own company, Perseus. So we ended up with basically two artist managers, Barney and myself, sitting down then with. Um, our team and working out how we could make something beautiful and then we said to all the artists who we looked around and thought you've got nothing to do and we can actually do something really cool here this is not our festival we've not called it the Votchers 8 festival we've called it the Live from London festival and that way any artist coming in doesn't feel like they are a, a, you know a guest of ours but uh-huh. more, much more like they are part of something that is a community but the building of that sorry to, sorry to be no. so specific but the building of those networks you're saying that you Robin and Libby were working on that for five well I think years. again it was just no, so the, there's a huge element of this which is actually. instinct and we between Paul and myself I think um, if you ask you know, if you ask me Botcher's 8 Foundation is a success for many reasons. A principal reason is that Paul and I have very different but very complementary skill sets. And between us, we can dream up a lot of things. You know, the, the joke is Paul makes the money, I spend it. Um, yeah. And <laughs> he, 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 he finds that wow. funny. Wow. Wow, someone really has <laughs> Between us, I think, honestly, if you left either of us to our own devices, we probably wouldn't have done all of these things we're talking about. But it's just this constant knocking together of heads, coming at it from different perspectives. You know, I'm we're both very entrepreneurial in our own ways, but I'm a big risk taker. Paul will, Paul will basically look <laughs> at the risk I am. All these types of things. And, you know, if you say to us, why did we start making videos? We started making videos because we put out one by chance, just because you could on Facebook. And we thought, mm-hmm. oh, I wonder what happens. And it got 10 times the traction of a photo. Mm-hmm. So we thought, oh. And then we put one on YouTube and people were like, oh my God, Miss Macy, you will have it. So we're yeah, like, quite, quite. Is that, that's oh, you summarizing your entire audience. do this. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> and so you just sort of, you know, you follow your nose, don't you? I mean, I'm sure you have the same So you're both, you're both... Either. You're both autodidacts, then. Neither yeah. of us know what that word means. <laughs> you both went to Cambridge. You both went to Cambridge, didn't you? No. Oh, no, right. neither of us. No, no, we're not Oxbridge. Oh, oh well, then I, you won't know what that means. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I mean, as in you learn through doing. Yes. We yeah. learn through failing, specifically. Yeah. And that's how you get better. Are you, are you therefore aware, either of you or both of you, that if you were to be in an organisation trying to do what you were doing, you probably wouldn't be able to do it. Yep. Get nowhere. 
Yeah, yeah, that's why we work for ourselves. I mean, I, I'm, I can say of myself, Paul's a lot easier to fit into an institution than I was. Well, it's, Paul would it's going be, great, this, isn't wow. it? You really have a, <laughs> you have a really Paul special would, relationship. Paul would, into, Paul would go into an institution and within a year or two, he would have sort of got the institution to work with him. Whereas I was just not institutionalizable, if that's a word. Mm-hmm. You know, you could put me in somewhere and I'd be like, I can't do what I want to do. I, yeah. I, and I would just sort of... He's a rebel, not, basically. I was a bit of a rebel, yeah. And so that's why, basically why we end up having our own organization, because we wouldn't fit anywhere else, in, in essence. Having come out of working, and I'm not going to name it in case I do use this as a piece of audio, <laughs> but having, having come out of an organization which is relatively small and had loads of opportunities and had potential to, to do something different, and it, it stitched into its, into its mission that it wanted to do something different, I have to tell you, it's a really, really difficult thing to do. That it only requires a handful of key people who are blinkered, uh, perhaps yeah. not as well informed as they might be, and yeah. and any idea yeah. can be can stall. That's our father and um, worked in the prison service, and um, for oh, thirty five years, right. and he was he was a key figure in the in revolutionising the whole service from being something you go into to be punished to something you go into to be given an opportunity to lead a better life. And he was key in that. And I think we basically watched him, seen all of his, because, you know, as you can imagine, he was swimming against the tide for 35 years. Yeah, he wasn't um, a prison officer then. He was someone... He was, well, he started he, as a prison he, officer and he oh. worked his way all the way up to basically running 45 prisons around the world, yeah, so... Um, and so, so cool, uh, I think, music much nicer. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that, I think we sort of do a similar, we're, we're quite similar to him in, in that respect. And um, yeah, but you, people always ask us, oh, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why did you do that? It's like, well, we sort of thought, well, that might be a good idea. We tried it and it didn't work. So we didn't do it. We tried it and it works. So we did it. I mean, I do find it reassuring. I mean, that's part of the reason for asking you because, because again, coming on, coming off the back of a difficult project, mm-hmm. I've kind of thought it, it prompted me to to experience a lot of self doubt, I suppose. Not I'm yeah. turning this in I'm not turning this into therapy, but but it did <laughs> prompt me to it did prompt <laughs> me to, to go, well actually you know, maybe maybe I'm the person who's got this wrong. Uh, maybe there is a maybe there is a formula, maybe there is a process and maybe there's no room for for Google wannabes. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and actually, I'm reassured that no, that's bollocks. I think so. I th- well, what I also love, I mean, Barney's talking about what the two of us do. The lucky thing is that as going back to the organisation, we employ people. And to yeah. everyone who is part of the team, they know, most of them are the musicians, so they spend their life, try something, fail. Okay, I'll try it again and we'll make it better. Okay, and we keep tweaking and we keep revising. And they do that with pieces of music. It's the same process with mm. everything around it, and they like to get involved in that. So actually, we have a workforce of people who are the ones on stage, being the same ones behind the scenes, also helping with social media, helping make the videos, learning how to do programming, learning all of the kind of skills that have been needed this year. Yeah. And so, you know, you talk about a department waiting to come back to life for an orchestra or something for gigs to be able to be sold again, whereas we've thought of it more like for our team to feel useful and like they have a sense of them self-worth, you just touched on that sort of idea, we need to give them something to do. And actually it might be something that's not singing in ensemble because that's illegal right now. So everyone came up with the things they wanted to look into. I think that the biggest danger facing Watchers 8 at the moment 
is that we start to go back to the old normal because the group and the team has progressed so far uh, that it, but it's very easy because the diary is just there waiting that we just go back to normal. Everyone puts down all the tools that they've now. Oh, you have got 15 with. cameras downstairs. I've counted every <laughs> single one of them. I, I imagine that you bought them. You, and now yeah. you know he bought them. Yeah, right, right. God, we're, really, we're really getting to the meat of this. Um, uh, so how do you think the team has progressed in, in the way that you said they have? Oh. Um, I'm still here. It's just people trying to call me. So, um, well, I mean, everybody has upskilled. For the first thing to say is effectively we had a team of singers before we started now I, I said to somebody the other day you know I used to walk into a Voxers 8 rehearsal and see soprano alto tenor bass now I walk in and I see social media design recording editing arranger you know I just see I actually don't see people for their voice parts or the, the specific singing job that they are you know ultimately certainly pre-pandemic employed to do um, so the whole thing is just completely revolutionized uh, and I think a lot of people have got a lot of enrichment out of that and will continue to do so. So the challenge for us now is that when we go back to needing to sing 100 plus concerts a year, that we still find a way to nourish the parts of people's working lives that have become enriched by all of this new activity. And that's going to be a real challenge. Yes, because um, presumably, uh, without wishing to be too businesslike, you know, there is a there is a greater need now to maintain retention because you've skilled up people to do a particular task that yeah. other organisations will go, oh, hang on, we can do with you yeah. now. There's an element of that as well, of course. So it's yeah, it's just going to be it's an exciting period. Do you have a plan for um, you know is your is your route to live performance is it sort of is it the hybrid model? It's, it's so well, talked about, I mean, isn't it? The word yeah. hybrid. Everybody it's, hates everyone, it. Everybody hates it. Nothing hybrid, but yeah, that's basically <laughs> better it. hybrid than pivot. <laughs> yes. I think. So yeah, yeah it we've, is. We've pivoted to a hybrid. Right. Okay. Barney's even uh, bought a leaf, haven't you? So you've gone hybrid in your car as well. So that's oh. not even hybrid. Paul. That's full, full electric. electric. That oh, sorry. There you go. Uh, hybrid's not enough risk for me. <laughs> you know, I need to. I need to drive down the motorway knowing that I might not get there. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really funny. <laughs> and now I can't get the sight of a car just like standing in a carriageway. Um, so so it is a hybrid model when you return to life. That's the hope. But I mean, you as you came in today, you met Tim, you met Itan, um, and Tom as well down there. Um, certainly, Tim and Itan are basically now new people we have employed this year who didn't have jobs or had lost their jobs and were not getting any support from the government because they're too too junior in the world to have had a job that would mean they could be self-employed. So we've actually used this time not just to upskill the team but also to bring in some new people who will help us keep the things going once we get back on the road. So it's lovely. Like Barney's, you know, it started off with Barney having to do quite a lot of the editing and now today he can be at home doing editing and we've got the team here doing something else and they're able their their own little little bubble now of Fotcher's eight studios and they off they go and they can When do your live concerts start again, please? Well, we did our summer school last week. Which which was um (laughs) that's what you did at Milton Abbey. Yeah. So we did wow. So we did five concerts through the week, um, and the summer school teaching. And I have to say, it was 
if you came well, to people you, must have been sopping when, when they came, came back there. You came two years ago. You yes, cannot, it is. It's a very, very hot day. Yeah, you came to Milton yeah. Abbey. And so that experience was beautiful two years ago, but just imagine the intensity of yeah. the experiences people were having, the stories that were coming out of that week. On a human level, everyone seemed to just... It's almost too much it was, there. I am, I am shattered from yes. just experiencing that emotional yeah. explosion. But um, I pretty, cried. Yeah, did you? I think everyone did. I think everyone <laughs> cried at some point. Barney tends to do it in the most public places, though. Right. He doesn't quite, quite, on quite, stage, yeah, always often. on stage, always after yeah, conducting. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, mate, you just made it all the way through the gig beforehand as yeah. well. <laughs> but hopefully not That's during. Actually, the secret, it's the secret to life in London is once a season. I will cry on camera, and yeah. that makes people sign up again. Sure. Wow. wow, that's the model. <laughs> that's, that's the model. Um, but and actually, the group. No, I tested it once; it seemed to go well, so I yeah. just. <laughs> but the the group is um, off to Croatia tomorrow for the first international gig since wow. ever. And I was on Croatian TV this morning, Paul. Oh really? Wow! How about that? Yeah, Brett, Croatia, wow, Brett's TV. Oh, it's, it's ridiculous. Oh, my God. I'm trying to get a US visa at the moment. That's an absolute nightmare as well. And, you know, we're suddenly going to start turning back to venues that can't be at capacity for one reason or another. Yeah. So n- not enough income coming in and more paperwork, more stress, more cost associated with getting anywhere as well. It's it's like Brexit. So actually, at the moment, <laughs> so therefore, at the moment, live concerts come with an enormous amount of cost yeah, and, and stress and admin and stress yeah. that perhaps aren't worth it. Well, I think they are worth it. I definitely think they're worth it. <laughs> but but um, I, I I don't think live music has lost its worth. But I think um, it and experiencing it certainly has definitely shown me having seen it online and been in a live space the value of both. But how much. It feels to be in a in a venue. Uh, the last thing I want to ask both of you is that you are making television. That is clear. Yeah. Uh, and and the style of your television has changed over the past year. I think. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know whether you think that. I do. Um, <laughs> it's because a lot of television producers got in touch during the first season and oh, went, really? "You're doing okay, but here's what you could do oh, better." Did people, come, <laughs> did people come to you with advice, Barney? Yeah, yeah. and some people and would have gone, "How dare you test?" <laughs> Um, yeah, yes, they did. Um, not many, and all in a um, in a very nice way, in a supportive way. Um, it, it all came down to how much kit you had and how how much it cost, really. Yeah. So, something people said about our first series, which I completely agree with, is that um, there was not enough motion in the picture. Yes. So, so that meant. Um, that we needed a crane. <laughs> Shania, <laughs> I call that. You didn't want that. <laughs> well, well, Bar- Barney did it really well. I didn't know till we had it. He does that sometimes. That's yeah. how he works. Yes, he does. Wow. Mysterious. Oh, look, we've given birth to <laughs> another camera. I got this. Camera. <laughs> well, the funny thing about the first live from London was, you know, we got one camera because we were going to make the Digital Academy. Um, and that was great. And then I had this idea, oh, we should do these concerts, you know. So, of course, we thought, okay, I, I thought, oh, okay, well, I can probably get away with four angles. So I got four cameras. And then the tickets started going up and up and up and up oh. and up and up and up. And I was like, we can't, del- you know, we cannot deliver. <laughs> these kind of we can't deliver something that looks like amateur hour here. So at that point, it got serious. So I never spent the money 
after it, be, it had been made. So are you are he's, you saying he's trying got, really hard to justify yeah, himself? Yeah, I'm, I'm getting the impression that you're sort of locked into this equation that says more cameras equals well, more revenue. The, the, the pleasing thing is that uh, we're sort of at the point with the kit where, to be honest, there's not a lot more we could have without going up up that level to to actual like a TV B, a BBC studio. truck rolling or indeed finding a larger venue. Um, yeah. Uh, do you both want to work in television? No. Oh. <laughs> oh. I mean, you? If someone came to me and said, "Would you produce this book, this ten concert season for us for TV?" I'd go, "Yeah, sure, if I had the time." But do I want a career in television full time? Oh. No. But I really, I really enjoy making the films because actually, it's such an artistic thing to do. Yeah. And it's also so wonderful to experience other groups working because actually it's a complete and utter privilege, A, to be there whilst these people give these concerts and go through the process of giving a concert. And B, to have the to have to be trusted to do the post production work for the ensembles that we're doing is a huge honour. And so I absolutely love it. I only asked that question because uh, when I watched the um, quartet for the end of time, yes, I thought it was a real, real, without wishing to blow smoke anywhere. uh, I thought it was a real deft move. Having it felt like there were some very careful choices made about uh, you know pre-performance talk in you know rehearsal gear, uh, and then. well, and actually, post-performance, uh, post-performance discussion with, with Carver. I'm sure it was Carver, it wasn't Champagne. Yeah, it was Champagne. Uh, it was, it was champagne. Okay, sorry. Well, we, have a, we have a Champagne sponsor. Oh. Which has been great. <laughs> somebody gives us money and says, specifically, you have to buy Champagne for the artists, otherwise you're not having this money. You have to spend it on that. Uh, no, that's why I was arguing about television thing, because it felt like it was content that was made for the likes of me. Oh, so I wonder nice. whether it's content that you make with an eye for yourself. We we make we make it to be how we would want to experience this yes. if we were not just going to watch it but get to know it. So like the well that piece that's a good example. Like we don't tell the the guys to wear shorts, but we just said you don't need to change. Just be casual, and we say that to every for every concert. The artists just sit there and chat, and then they'll go and change, and they'll come and perform. Well, without blowing smoke up your ass, that's uh, <laughs> what I actually really like about your interview style. Yeah. Is that is I don't feel like just being. He, no, he, he, he even said, "Was he talking about me?" Yeah, yeah. I don't feel like being asked. Listen carefully. I don't feel I'm being asked the questions that your producer wanted you to necessarily ask. I feel like you're someone who is interested in what we do, yes. and you are asking me what you would like to know, and that's you know. That's exactly what I do when I speak to all of these artists. I'm just I'm just an interested bystander to what they're doing. Yes. And so I, I think, therefore, <clears throat> that the questions and the things that I find fascinating, the people through the lens are going to find fascinating too. So I don't want to watch the quartet for the end of time just without any explanations to what the hell is going on. <laughs> and, without, and without meeting the people who are playing this seemingly... Even for me, it's just a level above, really, the, what they're doing and how they're doing it. Yes. It's a level above what I could do, actually. And so I want to meet them and understand that they're normal humans and I get a little bit of their personality so I can feel connected and like I like I know them because I'm a fan. So that's what we provide. Yes. 
Yeah, and I, I, I'm just flagging that there isn't really enough of that. No. That's, and, I completely agree with you. <laughs> anyway, I've come to the end of my questions. You'd be delighted to hear, That's which nice. means that you can go back to your editing. Hooray! Yes. Thanks. We were pleased that my computer's had a break, so that's good. Because yeah. the, the big powerhouse computer, my big powerhouse computer's at the centre for streaming. Do I've you... got to take ugh, a laptop to Croatia. Oh dear. Um, have, am I right in thinking that I came here last a year ago? We were trying to work out when it was. You think that, it was for a messiah? That's probably uh, no, that was that was December, I think. I think yeah, it came, came December, December for that. Uh, but I came here when you were rehearsing something, um, a piece. Yeah, it was that, a year ago. It was a year ago. Bloody hell. That's quite something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. For it's very nice to see you. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure it is. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Museum podcast. My name is John Jacob. You can find the podcast on Spotify, Audio Boom, Apple, Acast, and other places. Follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter at Thoroughly Good, on Facebook at Thoroughly Good Me, and on Instagram at Thoroughly underscore Good.